It is good to declare the gospel. It is also good to study the gospel. To do that this morning, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word, whether you have a printed copy, as I prefer, or an app on your device, and find Jeremiah chapter 24. Jeremiah chapter 24, and I want to preach to you a simple message called The Work of a Father. For those of you who are guests of ours, and I've met several of you, we've been walking through the book of Jeremiah for almost a year, and we're in a sermon series within that book called Lost Leaders. We focused our efforts on 20, 21, 22, and chapters 23, and we come to the conclusion of the series. In fact, for those of you who are, might be considered Jeremiah weary, we're going to take a little break from Jeremiah for a few weeks. We'll be back in it over in August, but we want to finish the series today in Jeremiah chapter 24. Now, to be honest with you, when I committed myself many years ago to preaching through the Scriptures verse by verse, I recognized that there would be certain holidays where the text that I had have chosen through the plan would not match, and yet the Lord is always gracious in that it seems as though every time we come to a special day, a significant day, like Father's Day, there's so much in the text for us to learn that, Dad, we can apply to our lives. Now, Jeremiah chapter 24 is not one of those chapters you go to if you want to read direct instruction as to the role of being an earthly father. But it is a tremendous example of the work of our Heavenly Father. Dads can teach us a lot. They teach us a lot in our lives. You can learn a lot from a good dad. But if you are an honest dad, you'll know there are always those feelings of, am I doing it right? Am I an adequate example? Do my children understand how much I love them? I don't know about you, but I certainly feel like the least gifted parent when I watch my wife parent. God gives our mothers an extra measure of grace to nurture from a place that, quite honestly, I, I don't have. And so when I see the tremendous parent that so many of you mothers are, I, like every father in the room, ask the question, am I doing what I need to be doing, how I need to be doing it? And when I need to be doing it. And yet I come to this passage. And this passage is about God and his work as our Heavenly Father with so much application to our lives. Let me remind you where we are. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is called to prophesy against Judah. Judah has had years, generations of rebellion and idolatry. They had forsook the Lord and taken on false gods and involved themselves in every kind of unspeakable immorality. Prophet after prophet had been sent. I often remind you that these prophetic judgments are not the result of God having a bad day. It's God finally, after years and years of loving kindness and long-suffering, deciding to discipline and punish his children. This, of course, is within his right as a holy God who judges sin. And so Jeremiah is sent to prophesy. And the prophecy primarily is going to be fulfilled through a pagan nation called the Babylonians. And their leader is Nebuchadnezzar. 
And what we find out is that in 586 B.C., all the prophecy that Jeremiah delivered comes true. Nebuchadnezzar marches on Jerusalem, destroys it completely, and it is never, even to this day, returned to its former glory. In fact, biblically, it won't be until the Lord delivers a new Jerusalem in a new heaven and a new earth. So this is Jeremiah's task. This is his marching order. However, prior to the total destruction of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar had influenced leadership enough to say, I'm in charge. I can come in and destroy you, but I'm not going to do that. As long as you don't rebel against me, I'm just going to pick and choose and take some of the Jews with me to strengthen my kingdom. And so a massive deportation takes place. We're told about it in the Chronicles and the Kings in your Bible. You have First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings. In the book of Second Kings, the Bible tells us that this took place. And he is a reference to Nebuchadnezzar. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land. He took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, why did he do this? The next verse tells us in the 16th verse of the 24th chapter of the book of 2 Kings. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000 of them strong and fit for war. You don't have to be an expert in the history of antiquity to see what he's doing. If you're going to conquer a people, and deport citizens from this conquered nation to come join your society, you're not going for the poor or the sick or the unskilled or the uneducated. You're not going for the old or the elderly or the infants. You're going to pick people who are in their prime, pick people who are officials, pick people who are skilled warriors and craftsmen. You're going to take the best of the best. And this is exactly what happened. In fact, biblically, you may not remember this. Let me remind you, two of the most prominent figures in the Old Testament are a part of this deportation, the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Daniel. Daniel especially is a young man who's chosen because of his health, his intelligence, and he and Shadrach and Abednego and Meshach are taken to Babylon. They are removed. Now, this has happened. So the Jews are in two places. Some are in Jerusalem, some have fled down to Egypt, and then others are taken over to Babylon. Why did I take a moment to explain that? Here's why. Chapter 24 is a short chapter with one vision. By the way, did you hear that short chapter part? Some churches will give men, you know, they'll give all the dads a book on Father's Day. I went to a church one time and they gave all the dads a screwdriver, like I need another screwdriver. I thought, what can I do for you? I can't buy you all lunch. I'd love to, but I can't do that. I thought, you know what? I'm just going to let you out on time. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank goodness for a short chapter. In this very short chapter, Jeremiah is given a simple vision. Let's read it together. I'll read aloud. Read along with me silently in God's word. Jeremiah chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two 
baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. You know what a fig is, right? Sadly, not fresh figs, although some of you may have access to them. But how many of you love fig preserves? How about fig newtons? There's always more applause for fig newtons than there are fig preserves, and there's more applause for fig preserves and fig newtons more than there are raw figs, which shows you why most of us have health problems. Figs are still delicious today, and some of the greatest in the world are grown right there in the Middle East. They were a delicacy. And the figs came in every summer in June and July. The last baskets would be taken in August. This vision shows two baskets of figs, and they are taken to the temple. Why the temple and not to a market? It is because just as people offered sacrificial lambs and sacrificial doves and other animals, they also offered the fruit of their harvest. There are plant offerings. There's gold. There's silver. According to the Levitical law, there were a number of things you could offer to praise the Lord and to temporarily show your regret and atonement for sin. All of the sacrificial offering in the Levitical law was merely a foreshadow of the ultimate sacrifice, the bread of life, who is the Lamb of God, the first fruits of all creation. You know, those New Testament terms used for Jesus. I'll go back to the connection of the Levitical law. So, Jeremiah is taken up in the Spirit. He sees a vision, two baskets of figs. Both of them are at the temple. Now, Let's continue to read. Look what, the, look what happens in the next part of verse 2. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs. These were the first off the vine. But the other basket had very bad figs. How bad were they? Jeremiah tells us. So bad they could not be eaten. We understand that food has a window of joy. In fact, usually the longer food will last on a shelf, the worse it is for you because the more it's been preserved or processed. If you ever get serious about your health, doctors and dietitians will tell you, shop on the outside of the grocery store. The things that have to be eaten soon because they're organic, they're in their purest form, the plants, the produce, and things that have to be kept refrigerated because they were spoiled, they're also to some degree in their purest form. When we eat out of boxes with little packages, we're eating food that does not benefit our body. Well, Jeremiah never had to be tempted by a little Debbie, but he knows the difference between a good fig and a bad fig, and you do too. I watch some of you when you go to the produce section. Some of you are cantaloupe thumpers. You thump watermelons. You'll be smelling stuff like you are a bloodhound, like you can smell, right? You'll handle, you'll look. You may buy a big bag of apples, or you may choose to choose your apples individually. And you know the old English saying, one bad apple ruins the barrel is because if a piece of fruit is spoiled, it can often contaminate the fruit around it. That's why they always tell you the only thing worse than finding a worm in your apple is half a worm in your apple. Some of you will get that later. You bit the worm in two. You bit the worm in two. We understand how this works. We understand that there is a moment when fruit is at its best. Some fruit we don't like ripe. How many of you enjoy fried green tomatoes? I think they'll be at the marriage supper of the lamb. By the way, before I begin preaching this message, I had no idea how many food references were in it. Some of this I make up as I go. Others of you like cantaloupe as long as it's really ripe. 
We want it soft. I want to be able to eat my cantaloupe with a spoon. But you know, if you buy fruit at the moment of its ripeness, you only have a window of time to enjoy it. If you've ever gone on vacation and you're going to be at a condo away from a grocery store for a while and you have a bunch of kids, you may buy some yellow bananas, but then if you're smart, you'll buy a few green bananas because in a few days, the green turns to yellow. One old man told me after the service, Pastor, I'm so old, I don't buy green bananas. <laughs> Tough day today. Tough day today. Tough crowd. Gee, loosen up a little bit. Good figs. Bad figs. Bad figs are told they cannot be eaten. Good figs are the best that Jerusalem had to offer. What does this mean? The vision tells us. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 3. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs. The good figs, very good. And the bad figs, very bad. So bad, they cannot be eaten. Notice the repetition of that phrase. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel... Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah. Remember the two groups? So he's talking about the people exiled, taken to Babylon, the Daniels, the Ezekiels, whom I have sent away, notice his control, he did it, from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Why? For they will return to me with their whole heart. Now watch verse 8. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so I will treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem, who remain in the land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. Some had stayed and some had fled against God's will to make an alliance with Egypt. I will make them a horror to all kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword and famine and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. Two groups, two destinies, just like two baskets of fruit. Good fruit, you share with your family. You share on Father's Day. You celebrate. You enjoy blessing others. Enjoy this. Bad fruit, you have to throw it out. There's nothing you can do with bad fruit. And God said, that's what I'm going to do with these two groups of my people. How do we apply this passage? First, we have to appreciate the work of our Heavenly Father. Appreciate our Heavenly Father's work. Let me show you what I mean. First is his power in redemption. Verse 24, excuse me, chapter 24 is really a summation of the whole book. At the end of the day, Jeremiah is a book about a prophet who says God's had enough. He's not going to destroy his promise, his plan, or his covenant, but he is going to divide people between those who are willing to repent and turn to him and those who are not. And those who are not will be destroyed, and those who will repent will be restored and renewed and returned to the land that God had given them. This is that remnant theology we've been talking about. And is this not exactly in chapter 24? 
what God told Jeremiah his prophecies would do in chapter 1? Listen to the same verse. See, I have set you this day, chapter 1, verse 10, over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build and to plant. Notice there's no middle ground. Either you are restored and renewed, planted and built up, or you are plucked, pushed away, overthrown, and taken. There is no middle ground. Chapter 24 tells us that's exactly what is going to happen, and God is in complete and total control of it. Now, the good news is, unlike today, I don't have a book. I don't have a book that I can pull out and read to you exactly what's going to happen in your life tomorrow. Now, I have a book that tells us about the future, and there are some specifics, but I, I don't have the ability to read your future. I don't have the ability to tell you the ins and outs of your life. But when we face ins and outs, ups and downs, uncertainties, isn't it good to know that we have a book that proves God has always been in control? Think about where we are today. I thought about this this morning as I drove here before the sun came up. One year ago today, we opened this building up for live services. It was on Father's Day last year that we were able to reconnect together in this building. I I never thought I would experience that because I never thought I would be with you in being a part of a church that had to close live services. We, in many churches, did it in many different ways, and we certainly respect and honor all the different churches and all the different cultures they had to navigate. But for us, we were closed for 14 months weeks, 14 consecutive Sundays, not a single person was in this room on Sunday morning except our technical team in the back that were broadcasting the pre-recorded worship services that we prepared for you for 14 weeks. And then we moved back in, and right when we moved back in, we were beginning a very tense, tense, contentious summer as a nation around the issue of racial injustice, racial reconciliation. Protests and riots were happening in many major cities last summer, and that conversation and that dialogue is continuing. We were also about to go into the second half of a summer and a fall with the most divisive presidential election in the history of our nation. And yet, in all of that, I stand here this morning and I say, God has been faithful, has he not? Has he not been faithful? Has he fed you? Has he clothed you? Is there breath in your lungs? Is there a beat in your heart? Many of you were infected with COVID. I was. He healed me. I I am so thankful for the health of so many. I recognize that many in our church were affected in different ways. And heaven forbid, I know there are people in our church who lost a loved one due to this terrible pandemic. But even those who've experienced great sorrow will testify to me, not me testifying to them. They will testify to me that in the midst of all that, God has been faithful. He is in control of a redemptive plan that supersedes all of what we see see in our lives. I know that no one in Jeremiah's life, including Jeremiah, could picture the year 2021. Yet in Jeremiah's life, the ups and downs of day-to-day struggling to do God's will never ever superseded, never ever reached a place where it took over the sovereign plan of God to redeem for himself a people. And we 
are a fruit of that. But there's something even better in this chapter. It's the pattern of God in redemption. God has a pattern in Scripture. He tends to choose the unlikely, the unwanted, and the unattractive. I don't know if you caught it when I first read the chapter, but if you were Jeremiah's contemporary, what would you have assumed? I'll tell you. You would have assumed, oh, yeah, Jeremiah, yeah, he's that prophet. He, he's continuing to preach judgment. And, and, you know, I heard, I know that a bunch of them got deported. Bunch of them got taken to Babylon. And, boy, heaven help them. We need to pray for them. But we're left here, and right now, things are peaceful and good. And so you would have assumed the crowd that got deported were the ones bearing the brunt of God's judgment. And if you lived in the city in relative peace, you must have been favored by God. When actually the opposite's about to come true. God says, no, I'm not going to do that. You know the folks you say are vulnerable? The folks you say are the outsiders? The folks you say are somehow under the wrath of God? Those are the ones I'm going to take care of. Those are the ones I'm going to redeem. Those are the ones I'm going to lift up. See, what you often see for evil, I mean for good. We saw this in Joseph's life way back, centuries before this, Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. Who's Joseph talking about? He's talking about his brothers. Brothers got to stay home. Brothers got to manage the farm. Brothers were never sold into slavery. Brothers never had their murder fate. Brothers never knew what it was like to be falsely accused. Brothers never saw their dreams dashed and their feelings of being alienated from their family. But Joseph did. And finally, brothers were starving to death. And Joseph is in a place of power under the favor of God. And the brothers realize they're in trouble. And Joseph says, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not even going to be angry at you. I'm going to forgive you because you thought you were doing evil to me. But God meant it for good. We see this over and over in Scripture where God takes what mankind calls foolish and calls it wise and take what, takes what mankind calls as disregardable, negligible, vulnerable, and uses it for his glory. What did they say about Jesus in the book of Mark? Have you not read this? The stone the builders wanted? No. The stone the builders cherished? No. The stone the builders rejected? has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Paul applied this to the believer's lives. He said the temptation is to look at what we don't have and feel as though we're up against a world of animosity and evil. And Paul says, wait a minute, consider your calling. Brothers, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. I don't know about y'all, but I'm not advertising my standardized test scores in front of you. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Even in our community here, most of you, three to four generations from the farm. Two generations from a little Mill Hill family where they were happy to get to finish high school. There's no nobility in and amongst ourselves. Nobody's wanting to televise our lives. Paul says, that's not the way God works. But God chose what is foolish in the world, just everyday common people, to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Why does God tend to lift up the vulnerable and love the alienated? I'll tell you what. The opposite of being vulnerable is being powerful. The opposite of being on the outside is being on the inside. The opposite of being weak and without privilege is being strong and having privilege. And guess what every one of those characteristics do in a human heart? They create pride. I am who I am because of my name, because of the name of my bank account, because of how healthy and strong I am, how popular I am. I am who I am because I made me. And let me tell you what happens to people who live their whole lives like that. They die lost in their sin. Because salvation only comes to a man or a woman who says, I'm not, I'm not strong. I'm not special because of my name. What, what, if anything, my family has accomplished doesn't instantly make me right with God. I come before you, Lord, broken and vulnerable and outcast because I need you to heal me and make me protected and make me an insider. I thought about this in what I saw so many of my friends posting about and celebrating Yesterday was Juneteenth, which is now a federal holiday. It should be. It's a significant day in the life of our country, but even more significant in the life of citizens of this country whose ancestors endured the weight of slavery. The interesting thing about this is when you read a quote about it, it's pretty fascinating. It was not until the Union soldiers arrived in Galveston, Texas on June 19, 1865, that the state's residents finally learned that slavery had been abolished. There's no Twitter feed in 1865. There's no app you can go to. The former slaves immediately began to celebrate. This is a historical account, not an opinion. With prayer, feasting, song, and dance. By the way, these slaves were not praying to Allah. They were not praying prayers in Eastern philosophical religions like Buddhism. They're Christians. They'd heard the gospel and yet they remained enslaved. And some of the most powerful testimonies of God's grace are when any population, whether it be this population or any vulnerable people, recognize God had not forgot us. God delivered us. God is working in our lives. This is his pattern. So if you feel like an outsider, get ready. God is preparing to work in your life. If you feel like you don't belong or you feel vulnerable because of your own shortcomings or maybe a lack of testimony in your family's life, you are the canvas that God can paint his most beautiful picture of grace. And beware, Christian, when you begin to feel like too much of an insider. Beware when you begin to take the protection and the favor of God and wrongly equate that it is because God has given you a measure of maturity not available to someone who's vulnerable, who's hurting, who is an outcast. In fact, the teachings of the Bible would say if there's any measure of protection, if there's any measure of favor, if there's any measure of blessing, the way in which you check that in your life is to turn around and say, God, how would you allow me to use my influence to find someone else who's vulnerable, someone else who's hurting, someone else who was lost and needs to be found and use my life for them? A beautiful picture of how our Father works. And now I'll close with the second part of this simple little chapter. The work 
of our Heavenly Father should be appreciated. But we also need to emulate our Heavenly Father's work. See, Dad, I can't tell you that Jeremiah chapter 24 is the manual for fatherhood. But I can tell you as I begin to study this chapter and read it, it was fascinating to me what came out of the pages. Look at verse 4 again. Then the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. When we look at the work of our Heavenly Father, Dad, we have a unique opportunity to emulate His fatherhood in our lives. And if you just look at these few verses let me give you three simple applications to remember. To emulate our Heavenly Father and to take this into the life and the work of every father, first remember, to delight in our children is not the refusal to discipline them. One of the patterns of God's fatherhood is that he both delights and disciplines his children. Notice the passage says, I will bring them back and regard them as good. Why were they deported in the first place? It's because they were guilty of sin. It's not that the people in Babylon somehow were the good Jews and the people left in Jerusalem were the bad Jews. No, there was a deportation of a lot of people and a lot of them had participated in the sins of idolatry. And because of that, we recognize that God is choosing to favor those who had had everything stripped away from them in deportation. And by the way, there's a, such a word of application there. Usually, you need to be serious and careful when you begin to pray for God to do a work in your life because the first step of him working in your life is to strip away anything you've become dependent on as your source of joy and strength. Often, you want him to heal, but he breaks first. Jesus had to die before he rose. We have to experience the death of Jesus before we experience the resurrection of Jesus. You go down, as the African-American preacher would say, before you go up. And when you begin to think through the implications of this in fathering, I have to learn to delight in my children and discipline them. Now, here's how we fail. We either err on the side of delighting in them so much, we feel as though disciplining them is not what God would have us do, or we put so much emphasis into discipline, we forget to delight in our children. Now, I don't have to tell you of the current war on masculinity. In fact, in the modern vernacular of media, it's not called masculinity anymore. It's called toxic masculinity. I remember reading one article this week in my preparation where one author decided she would write in, from a very unbiblical viewpoint that we need to redefine masculinity in order to save our children. I have a God who's already established masculinity. He is a heavenly father. He has revealed himself as father, not a heavenly mother. No offense 
ladies to that. We understand he created us in his image, male and female. And the femininity of women and the masculinity of men, especially in covenant marriage, reflect the full glory of God. I'm not in any way belittling that. But God, who is sovereign, could have presented himself to us in any way he wanted to, but he has revealed himself to us as a heavenly father, not that he created us and decided to assume the role of father, but that he eternally existed as the father of the son in perfect triunity with the Trinity, and he displayed his fatherhood through structuring humanity after his identity. And so we recognize that masculinity in the home is not taught by being gruff or insensitive or muscular. Masculinity in the home is taught by men who show children they can both delight and rejoice over the gift that their children are and discipline with a firm set of convictions they will not move off of. And by the way, this is where children flourish. Secondly, and we'll move quickly. Secondly, championing is remembering you have a choice. Paul said something pretty interesting in the book of Ephesians. I'll put it on the screen. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, Paul, writing in the first century, understood what provoke meant. It means to embitter. It means to be so hard on them that they become resentful of your discipline. Yet Paul doesn't say, be their best friend. He says, bring them up, same words in Jeremiah, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline meaning you create structure, which has consequence. Instruction meaning stop assuming they know and tell them, and of the Lord may be the most important part of the phrase, because it's not bring them up in the discipline and instruction of your own wisdom, of your own childhood. Some of you are breaking the chain of an unhealthy childhood by raising your children in this church. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice the similarities in that language and the language we read in verse 6. I will set my eyes on them for good. I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. They shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Notice God had a choice. Now, I'm not anyway suggesting that earthly fathers have the purview of sovereign choosing the way God did. But just as a heavenly father chooses to build us up, chooses to give us grace, every earthly father in this room faces the same decision each and every day. Not with the power of God, but with the perspective of being the first representative of a heavenly father, your children will see and know. If you were raised under the leadership of a heavy-handed father who did not love you well, your hardest connection with God is recognizing his love and grace. If you were raised with a father who was loving and gracious but did not discipline with a firm set of convictions, your hardest connection to God is recognizing he does love you immeasurably, but he demands holiness in your life, and there are consequences when you disobey him. But give me a little girl in this church. Give me a young boy in this church who's raised with an earthly father who's not perfect, but who prays for the wisdom to offer both the ability to build up 
and to love and to encourage with the desire to discipline and to mold and to shape. Give me that Father who chooses to build and not tear down, to plant and not pluck, to root and not destroy. I'll show you a generation of children who understand their heavenly father better because their earthly father was a reflection of his glory. Last application. We have to remember, redemption is rooted in relationship. The last thing God says he's going to do for Jerusalem, the last thing he's going to do for the Jews who are exiled, he said, I'm going to give them a heart to know me. And is that not the gospel? The gospel is not adding religion to your life with rules. The gospel is entering into a relationship with the Lord, which is built first and foremost, not of you choosing him, but him choosing you and experiencing the love that he gives you. And in response to that, you write him a blank check with your life. The sincerity that God wants has wanted from day one. If you will come to me with your whole heart, it's a phrase repeated five times in the book of Jeremiah. If you'll come to me with your whole heart, I will give you a heart for me. When we translate that into the New Testament, we see it in the teachings of the gospel. The gospel says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. When Paul is fleshing this out in the book of Romans, he speaks about that in that way. He says in Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, that means you don't operate with God in you, you will die. But if by the Spirit you obey the Lord in you, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Two verses later, he applies it. For if you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Notice what Paul does. Paul does what Jeremiah does. He says, your relationship with God must be seen through the lens of a child and a father. What dad who was on this altar a few moments ago wouldn't gladly lay their life down for their children? I don't want to die, nor does any dad in this room. I'm ready to die, but I'd rather not do it today. I don't want to die, but there's not a dad in this room in his right mind who wouldn't gladly lay his life down for his children. And why is that? Is it because the laws of the state of South Carolina say you should protect and care for your children and it's wrong to neglect or abandon them? No. I don't need a state to write a law to tell me to do what I would do naturally. Why will I do it naturally? Not because I'm obeying a law. I love my children. And you love yours. Well, when you love your heavenly Father, you long to obey Him. And when you disobey, you feel deep remorse and you receive His discipline. Now, Dad, drop that in the table of your life. When you build within your children a love and affirmation environment, then when you have to drop the hammer, it comes from a hammer of grace and discipline that is tied to relationship. 25 years ago, Josh McDowell said, rules in children's lives without relationship always equal rebellion. Rules without relationship equal rebellion. I would just simply add, based on the teaching of this text, rules with relationship creates an environment for redemption. Our God is a redeemer. He's not looking for perfect fathers. He's looking for fathers who love a perfect heavenly father and allow his love to flow in and through them into the lives of their children.
appreciate him and emulate him. Let's pray.